So a lot of folks don't know the differences between what their local elected representatives are in charge of versus their maybe HOA or their federal representative. And I think a lot of folks don't know how big of a difference these folks make locally and in your lives um, and have in day-to-day lives. And so people should, should pay attention. And every day at my job, I feel like I was learning about something new. That is Diana Gomez. She is a local civic enthusiast and co-founder of La Politica. She is our co-host today with Amy Stansbury on this episode of our co-op podcast, the Austin Common Radio Hour. Thanks to local Austin singer-songwriters, the Tiara Girls, for lending us the song in the background. And now, to our host, Amy Stansbury. We're back for another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. Um, I'm really excited for this one because it kicks off a series of conversations that we're going to be having with the candidates running to represent you on Austin City Council. And today we're going to be talking with the candidates running for City Council in District 2, which is in Southeast Austin. Um, But before we go any further, I want to introduce you to Diana Gomez, who's going to be co-hosting today's episode with me. Hi, Diana. Hello. <laughs> and so um, what we are going to be doing for all of these different district races is having just someone else come in and co-host with me. That way we've got more Austinites have the chance to chat with their city council members. Um, and Diana, I know pretty well because we um, did some civic engagement things over the over the years. And um, she's really active and engaged in our local community. I'm going to read a few, um, few parts of her bio here. And Diana, chime in. Um, I know that You're the co-founder of La Politica. Do you want to explain for folks what that is? Yeah, um, so I first got involved in uh, in civic engagement only about a year and a half ago um, when I was working for um, a local congressman, uh, Congressman Doggett, uh, before I'd never really been in any political spaces. And when I was, I noticed that uh, there weren't a lot of other Latinas in these spaces. So I got together with some friends and we created an organization called La Politica, which uh, encourages other Latinas in Austin to become civically engaged. And we're making a push uh, this fall for folks to, to vote, get registered to vote, get their friends to vote. Um, and our social media is at La Politica TX for more information and uh, including any upcoming events we'll have. Great. And then also, um, you're the Civic Engagement Coordinator of Frida Friday ATX. Um, do you want to tell people a little bit about Frida Friday? Yeah, so Frida Friday ATX is the largest uh, woman of color-led uh, market in Austin. They have so many folks, uh, you know, pre-COVID going in person to, to their events. And now post-COVID, they're doing a lot of really cool virtual markets. They had a huge um, or they have a huge audience of, of young folks, of people of color, of, of queer folks, and um, want to get those folks civically engaged as well. And so I help lead their efforts, including during the uh, past primary election, I helped interview so many of the candidates that were on the ballot and shared uh, all of those interviews on our social media for, for these uh, folks to, to engage in and be able to see where these candidates landed on uh, BIPOC issues. Cool. And also, like you mentioned, you were a congressional staffer for uh, Lloyd Doggett. That's how we met. Um, and now you're the advocacy manager at Progress Texas. So a lot going on. I'm excited that you're able to co-host today. Um, always nice to have another civic engagement nerd join in and <laughs> help me interview these candidates. So it should be fun. I'm excited. Um, okay, cool. So before we jump into it, um, I always like to kind of give people a little bit of a a mini civics lesson at the top in case you're not hyper engaged with local government and you don't really know what's going on. Um, So we're just going to walk through a little bit of basics about what we're talking about here. So in Austin, we have 10 city council districts. Um, Each one is represented by one council member. Um, And as an Austinite, you can really only vote in your council district's race, right? So if you live in district two, you get to vote for the council district, the council member district two. 
Um, and every two years, half of city council is up for election. So this year we're focusing on um, district two, four, six, seven, and 10. So those are the districts up for election. If you live in those districts, you will see a council um, district seat on your ballot. If you don't, you have to wait two more years. But um, And like I said, today we're gonna be focusing on district two. Um, district two, in case you're not familiar with our Council District Maps is in Southeast Austin um, and includes neighborhoods like Dove Springs, um, kind of east not near the airport. Um, and if you're not sure which council district you live in, you can always visit austintexas.gov government and figure out which district you live in. Um, and a little bit of background is that District 2 is also the only council seat on the ballot this year without an incumbent running. Um, an incumbent is just someone who already holds that position and is running for re-election. Um, and there's no incumbent in this race because the current District 2 City Council member, Delia Garza, decided not to run again. Um, she's actually running to be our next county attorney. Um, so that's a little quick recap of where we are today. Um, and before we get to the candidates, I wanted to chat a little bit and bring Diana back in um, about like why this stuff matters, you know, like I'm very passionate about local government and these city council races, but Diana, like what makes you interested in these smaller elections? Because sometimes they don't get as much attention. Yeah, and that's a shame. Um, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons why I've become such a civic engagement nerd is learning about local politics. And now I feel a little bit obsessed with it because I feel like I've found out about these secrets on how our government works that everybody should know they shouldn't be secrets. But um, basically, again, when I got my first job working in politics, working for a congressman, I didn't know what a congressman was. I didn't know what uh, federal duties are or what, what goes under a federal government. Um, so as I was slowly learning about that, um, I realized that our office would always get calls about local issues. Can you help with my HOA issue? Can you help install this light here? Can you help with, you know, all these things that we would always have to redirect folks and tell them, well, actually that's, um, that's a state issue, or actually that's, you know, you have to go to your city council person for that. So a lot of folks don't know the differences between what their local um, elected representatives are in charge of versus their maybe HOA or their federal representative. Um, and I think a lot of folks don't know how big of a difference these folks make locally and in your lives um, and have in day to day lives. And so people should should pay attention. And every day at my job, I feel like I was learning about something new and it was just like blow my mind. And I'm like, oh, my God, more people need to vote. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, especially right now, um, since uh, we don't have down ballot, um, elections anymore, the, the risk is higher of folks not looking at these other seats that are further down on the ballot. Um, and there's always the risk of people not really turning out or, um, you know, people winning these races by just a small margin that if people really knew the power of their vote, I feel like more folks would, would turn out. Yeah, it's a good point too um, for people. I didn't mention it earlier, but um, city council races are not run um, according to party. So um, all of these candidates you're about to hear from, when you see them on the ballot, they're not going to have that little R or D next to their name, which I know for a lot of people is a big way that you figure out who you're voting for. Um, so another reason why you have to do a little bit more research on these races. Um, and I always like to say, you know, if you're someone who um, has, is interested in housing or homelessness, if that's been an issue that has galvanized you lately, if you're concerned about affordability in your neighborhood or gentrification, or COVID now, I think that everything we've seen with um, the COVID crisis has really shown us how important local government is because all of a sudden it's our local government that is having to respond. Um, and obviously everything that happened this summer with the police budget, um, all these are issues that local government deals with that our future city council is gonna have to deal with. Um, so lots to talk about. Um, okay, cool, let's get into it. I don't wanna take any longer. I wanna make sure we have a chance to chat with all the candidates. So um, to start, I think we just wanna obviously get to know each of you a little bit better. Um, so really, we just wanna know a little bit about you. Like, what do you do for a living? How long have you lived in the district? Um, what community groups are you associated with or have you volunteered for? Um, let's start with you, David, if you wanna go ahead. 
Thank you, Amy. And um, thank you all for putting this together. You know, one of the reasons I'm running is that our district has been really disengaged and I want to make sure that our campaign, you know, doesn't just turn out some people to vote, um, but that it really helps to get people to feel ownership of their own community and over their own local democracy. And so, you know, I appreciate the work that y'all are doing uh, to make that happen. I know you've been at it for a long time. Um, well, my name is David Chinkanchen, and uh, I'm really proud to be running in District 2 because I grew up in Dove Springs. And Southeast Austin is the community that I have always known and loved. Um, it's the community that I still live in now. And, um, you know, it's the community that despite facing so many challenges, despite being so underserved and underrepresented, um, has given me and so many other people so much. Thanks to the support of bilingual educators, of library staff, rec center staff, and community leaders, I was able to be the first person in my family to earn a college degree uh, from the University of Texas at Austin. And since my time there, uh, organizing with University Democrats, uh, working with Congressman Lloyd Doggett, um, I, have, I have worked to create more opportunities for the children and the families in our community that are still facing some of those really big challenges. Um, and even bigger challenges that have arisen as uh, our city has continued to grow. So I have had the honor of serving as the chair of the Austin Tejano Democrats. I, as a board member of my labor union, AFSME 1624. I serve on the executive committee of the Texas Democratic Party, representing the statewide Hispanic caucus. And I have worked for almost five years at City Hall as a senior policy advisor and then chief of staff on issues related to affordable housing, public transportation, public safety, economic development. And more recently, I worked as a community liaison um, with Constable George Morales focusing on making sure that our hard to count communities were included in the 2020 census to make sure that we get the resources that we need and deserve and providing food protective equipment and other vital resources to families in Southeast Austin who have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Um, we've been disproportionately impacted because we face decades and decades of institutional neglect. And that has left us with issues like housing instability and food insecurity, lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to childcare, lack of access to economic opportunity. And so I'm running to help correct those decades of institutional neglect. And I'm running to do all that I can to better the lives of working families in our community and to build an Austin where every single person, regardless of where we come from, has the opportunity to pursue their dreams and achieve their potential. Thank you. And what about you, Casey? Maybe we'll bring you in now. A little bit about you. What community groups are you associated with? What do you do for a living? Why are you running? Thank you. Well, I'm running because we're not represented correctly at the top. There's a huge disconnect between the candidates and between our current incumbents. Uh, you know, they're not listening to the community and that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to be a voice for the community, a voice for the unheard, a voice for people who are struggling now and that don't, that don't need help in 10 to 15 years, but they need help now. And as far as my background, well, I'm a third generation Austinite, um, born and raised um, primarily in Dove Springs, but I went to school all over the district. I went to Aikens High School, Del Valley High School, Del Valley Junior High, Smith Elementary, and even an old uh, private school, uh, Christ Community Christian School on South First, uh, which is also in District 2. And uh, so, you know, I've, I'm entrenched in the district. Uh, I live here. I know the ins and outs of it. Uh, my grandmother was the librarian at the Terrazas and Southeast Branch Libraries in, uh, for over 25 years. My mother was a parent community liaison at Smith Elementary in Del Valley ISD, which is also in District 2 for 25 years. And they passed that torch on to me. And so they taught me about community service. They taught me about women's empowerment. They taught me about social and environmental justice. They taught me how community service helps to move the community forward and, and bring the community together during hard times. And I continue to do that even as an elite professional boxer traveling the world and traveling the country and getting educated at Austin Community College and St. Edwards University. I always continue to give back to my community. I was a board member for the Dust Springs Recreation Center Advisory Board, vice president of the Dust Springs Neighborhood Association, a founding member of Dust Springs Proud, founding member of Community Not Commodity, all nonprofit organizations that have not paid me to do work, but I've volunteered to do the work. I spent my own hard earned money to help found these, some of these organizations and they've helped thousands in the city uh, with community, not commodity. We already put together a petition of 30,000 signatures to fight the rewrite 
rewriting of our land development codes, which was not uh, equitable and not and did not represent our community correctly. Uh, with Dust Springs Proud, they've given away thousands of dollars in scholarships and uh, funds for needy families. And, you know, as far as my parents and as far as myself, I just give back daily. Every day I'm in the community. I'm a part of the community. I'm here. If anybody needs help, uh, for example, the other day, me and my girlfriend were driving around and we saw a, a, an old woman who was stranded, who was not even from our district, but she was stranded in our district. We gave her a ride to her district. And it just so happens that her daughter lived in the district and, uh, you know, we're just helping people out. That's all we do. I'm a part of the community. I'm here. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. After the election, I'll continue to do work uh, within the community. Right now, I'm giving uh, 100 families a week uh, food care boxes through a program that I'm working with, with Capital Metro and HEB, and we're delivering to, to schools all over the district. And we're helping pa pass information for safe practices for COVID, as well as PPE, uh, uh, excuse me, equipment and uh, safe practices. So, you know, we're working and we're here for the community. And win or lose, my hat's off to all of my opponents for giving their all and for caring about the community. And I just hope to continue to work together so that way we can make true progress and we won't be so disconnected from the community and, and we'll actually listen to the community and what they want and what their needs are. Cool. Um, and again, that's Casey Ramos. Um, Vanessa, do you wanna go next? Sure, hi everyone, I'm Vanessa Fuentes. Uh, I moved to Austin about 15 years ago to attend the University of Texas at Austin. So welcome Longhorns for anyone listening in. Uh, and have been here ever since, you know, I chose Southeast Austin as an area where I would like to raise my family in. Uh, it was really important that I had a community that looked like me, that had the same values that I had, um, and where, uh, you know, I could make a home. And uh, professionally, I've worked at the American Heart Association for the last six years doing public health advocacy and policy at the local, state, and federal levels. Um, before that, I worked at the state capitol. Um, working on criminal justice policy. I've worked on political campaigns um, for County Judge Sarah Eckhart, Mike Martinez, uh, Judith Zaffarini. Um, but what I'm most proud of is the volunteer work that I've done. And as Casey mentioned, unpaid volunteer work. Um, I have served, a, a, actually I was president of the Get Out the Vote Committee for the Del Valley School Bond that we passed last year. And that was the first time we had a coordinated effort for a Del Valley ISD school bond. Um, I also helped start the Southeast Democratic Alliance. I served as the co-chair of the Travis County Democratic Party Diversity and Outreach Committee. Um, I was president of the Young Women's Alliance and served on the Hispanic Women's Network Texas Board, uh, Hispanic Chamber Board, volunteer with Con Mi Madre, Latinitas, um, at Dove Springs Proud as well, and the Dove Springs Community, which is another Dove Springs group, um, and volunteered with GAVA. And, you know, those are just a few of the things that I'm really passionate about. The reason why I started running for city council, um, I actually announced right before the pandemic hit, was related to health equity and the health divide that we have here in Austin, where if you live on the west side, you have a life expectancy of 10 years minimum, 10 years longer than if you live on the east. Um, and so as someone who's raising a family um, in Austin, I mean, in Southeast, I just, that was fundamentally not going to be okay. So that's why I got into the race. And now I think, you know, we're in a pandemic. So my background in public health advocacy will serve my community well. Yeah. And then lastly, we've got Alex. Do you want the same thing? Who you are, why you're running, a little bit about you. Um, sure. Thank you guys so much for having me on the show. Um, my name is Alex Stranger. And you know, I'm an entrepreneur who drives a pedicab. Um, I've been doing this for the past close to seven years, you know, and I'm literally the working man who our city council claims to care so much about, but everything that, everything that they have been doing, um, in regards to, in regards to COVID and in regards to how they've been perpetuating the civil unrest, it's, it's been hurting me a lot more and it's been hurting people like me a lot more than, um, it's been helping me. You know, we, we shut down the economy pretty arbitrarily and you left, they, they left myself as well as countless other people in the service industry without a, a clue as to what they were going to do completely high and dry. And then when they're renegotiating their budget and when they defunded their police, we defunded $170 million from APD. 
not a single penny of that is being used to actually help the people most affected by the shutdowns, which are our bars, our live music venues, the people in our service industry, working people who are living, you know, at or below the poverty line. Um, you know, our, our, I feel like our, our response to homelessness is something that really needs to be called into question, you know, and on one hand, I don't think we should be criminalizing this stuff. But on the other hand, we need actionable solutions to reduce the amount of homeless people that are on our streets. You know, I like from just from working downtown, I've seen a noticeable increase in the amount of homeless people that are downtown and it causes less people to want to go visit the downtown area. And it's like I said, for, in terms of this, from the service industry perspective, it um, has a big effect on, you know, my friends and colleagues being able to make a living if less people are going into the bars and the restaurants because of that. So we need, we need to start incentivizing um, companies to actually do um, cleanups and clothes drives and food drives. And we should also utilize that through diversion programs. If you're like, you know, a juvenile and you committed a low level offense, you should be able to clean up a homeless encampment to um, have that expunged from your record. And I think that when it comes to like how we defund APD, we could, um, I think there are better ways to do it. And I think that we need meaning, we need a reallocation of funds and we need meaningful police reform. And one of those things that we need to do is we need an independent review board to investigate police misconduct. These people should be um, objective with not really partisan political opinions. Uh, I think that they need to be better trained. You know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu training and proficiency in a grappling martial art and consistent training should be a requirement because that'll help officers diffuse um, confrontational situations without using excessive or deadly force. And, you know, I was, uh, as, as someone who drives a pedicab, I was downtown when uh, Garrett Foster died. And I saw the cops were the first people on the scene and they didn't really know how to administer care. And, you know, he's not with us anymore. So I think our police officers, they need to be EMT certified. And, you know, my, my life experience, I'm, I'm in the thick of a lot of stuff when I'm downtown. So I, you know, I, I just want to offer that perspective to people, regardless of whether I win, lose, or draw, there are a lot of glaring issues that are happening right now in the city that need to be addressed. And I'm literally that man on the street to bring this to your attention. Okay. All right. Awesome. I mean, I think one of the things I know, at least for myself, Diana, I don't know if you see this too, but it's like um, with city council candidates, they are people that like do they're engaged in the same community groups you are engaged in, you know, they, they grew up in the same neighborhood you did, they went to the same schools. And I think that helps so much when you're making your choice. It's sometimes I always get asked, like, how do you figure out who you want to vote for? And, and sometimes it's like, well, I, I actually know these people <laughs> and be a huge benefit or help. Yeah, and I think it, it happens a lot too, especially if, if you are someone who um, is involved in your community um, probably form relationships with a lot of folks that are just really great leaders that, you know, end up running for, for different offices. Yeah. Um, so the next thing I think we wanted to talk about, um, one thing we did is we put out questions, um, a poll on Instagram, um, and we asked people, what should we ask you all <laughs> in District 2? And overwhelmingly, I'm sure you've heard it a lot, is you know, what are we doing about gentrification? That was the big question we got and over and over. And um, I think, you know, for me as someone that just like follows what happens at City Hall, I think that gentrification and displacement has been one of the most frustrating things to see play out. You know, I think Austin does earnestly try and work hard on a lot of issues and we've made progress on some things, but it doesn't feel like we've made a lot of progress on gentrification and displacement. Like we just talk about it a lot, <laughs> but we don't do that much about it. Diana, like I know that you'd engage in a bunch of other civic um, stuff around town. Like, do you hear the same complaints when you're trying to get people engaged in the housing component? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think it really turns people off to reaching out to their leaders or to feeling like they have uh, faith in their leaders is seeing a lot of the cultural value that makes America uh, makes America uh, makes Austin so great, and that has drawn a lot of people here. To to see a lot of that go away um, just really saddens people, and I think it it makes folks a little bit jaded when it comes to politics. Yeah. So basically, what we want to do is chat with you a little bit about what what we can do about this. I think you know one of the things that we did get from our um, folks on Instagram is what can we actually do? We all know that gentrification and displacement is, 
is not something we want, um, but what can we actually do about it? Vanessa, maybe we'll start with you and um, Diana too, like feel free to chime in if we, we can, um, don't have to make it so back and forth for me, but Vanessa, why don't you start? Yeah, no, you hit the nail right on the head because displacement gentrification are probably one of the top issues that I hear most common from people from District 2, from our community. Um, and some of the proposals that I've championed um, and I have a plan on how to tackle our housing and displacement crisis on my website um, is, you know, adding additional community land trust, expanding the right to stay and right to return a preference policy that the city of Austin um, just recently passed that came from um, the uh, uh, displacement task force recommendation report. Um, also establishing an office of housing stability and neighborhood stabilization program. Um, all this to say is that there was a group that was formed to offer recommendations to the city of Austin, to our council leaders, on how to mitigate displacement. And so certainly there are strategies out there that have been recommended and we just need counsel. We need our leaders to commit to it and then take the action. Um, and so those are a few things that I, that I champion and I would of course um, recommend. Um, you mentioned land trust was one of the things you said. I've heard this pop up, this term pop up from time to time. Can you explain that briefly? What do you mean when you say land trust? Because I think not a lot of people maybe familiar. Uh, so it's essentially when the community, when the city buys the land and they have ownership of that land and they're able to develop housing that is truly affordable. That's the other big conversation that we have here in Austin. And I know uh, my fellow candidates, we've talked about this in many forums, but affordability for our community needs to be at 50% medium family income and below. You know, our average, our median income in District 2 is about 40 uh, $7,000. And so when we look at the, the housing that is quote unquote affordable that is being created and incentivized by the current programs that we have, that's not affordable, truly affordable to many people living in District 2. So it's uh, community land trust is a way for City of Boston to acquire land and then build on that land and then, uh, and then residents can go and, and live there and then um, they have to make a certain commitment you know, should they, when they do sell, uh, to keep it at the affordable cost that they paid for it. And how is something like that funded? Through, through the city. So, the city. I mean, we passed an affordable housing bond. Um, Be like a bond. Go, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess you may, there might be other creative ways to do it, but that's one way. Great. Okay, and, and what about you, Casey? Oh, sorry, Diana, do you want to chime in? No, I was just like, wow, like I've heard that said so many times, but I never knew what it meant. And I'm just like nodding along, but it's <laughs> cool having these things defined. Um, yeah, I would say also candidates, as we continue to ask um, you questions, like think, be thinking about that. I'll prod you if you don't say it, but if you do use like a jargony term, try and define it. Yes. Um, Casey, do you want to go next? Well, the land trust is actually a great idea, and it actually can, it can come from both a city a city source uh, taxing ourselves through a bond, or it can come through a private corporate private corporation, a nonprofit uh, like the Guadalupe uh, Community Land Trust, I believe, that's already here in Austin. Uh, so you know we need private help too. We can't just do it all on our own. But also, the city of Austin is the biggest real estate holder in the city of Austin, especially specifically within our district. So I would you know, propose that we get the city to uh, build affordable housing on all of the city owned land because we have tracks of it. You know, we could build swaths of affordable housing with the, the land that's owned by the city. And then on top of that, we need to preserve that's already existing mm -hmm. affordable housing that's already in our neighborhood, which is uh, was which, which was built in the 70s, 80s and 90s. We need community land trust. We need tax exemptions. We need expanding uh, affordable housing. We need to uh, incentivize homeowners to uh, rent their properties versus sell them so that they can benefit from the rising costs of, or, or the rising property taxes with here in the city. And, uh, you know, we need to refocus most of our important aspects of our land of the rewrite of our land code to uh, benefit and to be prioritized around the people that uh, already live in the district, not what we're going to predict is not who we're going to predict is going to live here in 10 to 20 years. We need to build everything accordingly. 
so that we can match our demographics and that so that we can con continue to stay intact as a community. And I believe the perfect time is now because we're, our land development codes are outdated and we have every right as, as uh, homeowners or as renters to protest any zoning changes that are coming within our, that are coming to our neighborhood. So we can control gentrification. It just has to, the word has to be out, has to get out and people have to know how. So we have rights to protest zoning changes. We have rights to protest our property taxes. We have uh, the ability to uh, fight for tax exemptions. We have the ability to fight for community land trust. And we have the ability to make the city do what we want them to do by just getting out and voting and taking out bonds that we feel are gonna be benefit the community directly and economically. For example, I propose that we take out a bond for a public works trust fund, which will fix our, uh, excuse me, which will fix our infrastructure, our sidewalks that go to nowhere, our stormwater drainage system, our wastewater drainage systems, and all contracts that would be taken out from this uh, bond would be awarded locally to the community, to all of the skilled workers in our district. And then on top of that, I would build income-based housing through an income-based housing trust fund, through another bond. So they would complement each other. First, we build our infrastructure, and then we build on top of our infrastructure. That's gonna help us last for the next 50 to 100 years. And of course, once again, all of the homes would be, all, excuse me, all of the contracts to build the homes would be awarded locally so that the bond money is not leaving out to outside contractors, but it's staying within the community. It's, circling, it's circulating within the community and it's stimulating our uh, economic recession that we have here going on in our district. Um, a quick definition I want to add real quick, since you mentioned it um, several times, if people aren't familiar, a land development code. And so yes. that's basically, yeah, a land development code is basically, I like to say it's like a rule book kind of for how our city is allowed to be built or developed. And it really impacts things like how yes. dense our city is, what can be built, where it can be built. Exactly. People have been following Austin politics for a while. This has been an issue we have tried to deal with. Um, and haven't yet, <laughs> really, <laughs> in We're, some capacity. Uh, and I believe seven <laughs> years in, and uh, still no results. And because mm -hmm. of the disconnect that I said, that I was mentioning earlier, the disconnect between many of the candidates and with the incumbents, they're not, they're not listening to the people. And the people fought for it. Like I said, I was proud to be a part of the group, Community Not Commodity, that was able to gather 30,000 signatures to protest it, and to be able to keep our right to protest zoning changes which is also another tool to fight gentrification and the city wants to take that away. If you want me to explain on that, I would also expand on that also. I'll give, let's give Alex a chance to jump in and no then worries. maybe we'll circle back around. Alex, um, what are your thoughts on what we can, what are some concrete action items we can take or the city council can take to help out with gentrification and displacement? Well, I mean, our response to COVID has definitely not helped in any capacity, if anything, it's exacerbating that when you're telling people that they can't work or they can't operate their business without a plan to provide them with uh, just compensation for not working when they still have a mountain of bills to play, pay, uh, you know, that's, that's a human rights violation. Um, you know, and also when, when you're not providing meaningful aid to the businesses that are shut down as a result of like, as a result of this virus, um, you're taking jobs away and, and you're, you're not allowing them or you're making it harder for them to actually pay their employees. And, you know, the more people that are unemployed, the greater your affordability concerns are going to be if you can't pay your bills and you're not getting a steady paycheck, especially in light of the fact that there's no stimulus money coming in right now. So I think what we need to do is we need to prioritize reopening as quickly as possible because you're going to exacerbate these problems. Well, like I may have mentioned earlier, um, when it comes to affordable housing, we also need to build affordable housing and at 30 to 50% MFI, and it should be for people that make up the backbone of the city. You know, um, a lot of instances, there are a lot of instances where developers, they um, they get their, their density, they build above the density bonus, and um, they waive the fee and lieu for a whole multitude of reasons. But I think that we should only raise the fee and lieu if they promise to build affordable housing units at 30 to 50% MFI, and you dedicate those units to the people who make up the backbone of our city, you know, like our, our um, artists, our musicians, our students, our teachers, our city employees, our healthcare workers, 
and our uh, blue collar professionals. We need to make sure that these people have a, a home in Austin and we got to make it so they can thrive and prosper here. And um, you know, one, one last thing that I completely forgot to mention, you know, we're one of the fastest growing cities in the United States and um, you know, we need to do a better job of having people in low income communities and in district two benefit from our growth. And so we need to start offering comprehensive financial education to people within the district. And we could utilize that through our town halls, teaming up with um, finance professionals, bankers, independent realtors, entrepreneurs. And, you know, I think that um, if more people in the district understood how the stock market worked, they understood like what a PE ratio was, how to read an income statement, like a cash flow statement, the balance sheet, um, you, you'd see, you could definitely see a big change in income inequality because I'll have a better understanding of what to do in the face of all of this stuff, provided we can't, you know, fix these issues to our liking. So you just want to give yeah. people as many tools as possible. I want to bring David in, but really quick, I want to, again, define one of the terms you mentioned, which is density bonus. Um, and so let me, tell me if I get this right. The idea behind a density bonus, this is a program where mm -hmm. the city allows a developer, someone that's building a building to build higher likely than what's allowed. Um, as long as they promise to make X percentage of units in there affordable. So price lower than the rest of the units. Yeah. Does that, is that fair? Yeah, that's that? pretty spot on. Okay, cool. Um, all right, David, let's bring you into, I want to make sure you get a chance to talk about this. What can we do as a city to like actually take some action on gentrification and displacement? Thank you. Um, so I think that along with addressing our immediate health crisis and taking urgent action on climate change, the main issue is affordability um, and the displacement that, that it has caused and uh, that we have seen throughout East and Southeast Austin. Um, this is something that I've had the chance to work on um, in, in my previous roles, including during my work at City Hall. You know, I was really proud to be one of the people that helped put together the single largest affordable housing bond that our city has ever seen in 2018. And you know, thankfully, voters approved that. And now we are making an even bigger investment as part of our, our proposals that we have on the ballot this November. Um, but we need to understand that affordability is not just about housing, right? It's, uh, yes, we need bigger, bolder investments in affordable housing. Uh, we need to revise our land development code uh, to help us preserve and create more affordable housing opportunities. Um, but we also, it's also about, uh, public transportation. You know, people are having to go further and further out of the city to find uh, affordable housing. And the further they go, the further they are from the services that you need. And so we need to also focus on making real investments in public transportation so that folks can be connected to grocery stores and employment centers and schools and health centers and childcare centers and so much more. Um, and as we work to lower the cost of housing and lower the cost of transportation and lower the cost of childcare. We need to make sure that we're working to provide more economic and educational opportunities for our families, um, for, the, for the working families that made our city so attractive to begin with. They're the reason, you know, that, that diversity, that cultural richness is what brings people to Austin. Um, and, you know, the irony, the tragic irony here is that, you know, as more people come, um, those folks are, are being displaced. And so I think step one is um, understanding that not doing anything, um, that ignoring the issue it, is not good enough, um, that we need to revise our land development code. You know, our current land development code is rooted in a segregationist plan from the 1920s, and it hasn't changed significantly since the 1980s. Um, and what we have seen under these conditions is sprawl, displacement, gentrification, environmental degradation, and flooding. And that's not okay. We need to take action. We need to change our land use policies. We need to change our investments to make sure that we are supporting those working families that have made our city so great to begin with. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, folks mentioned some, some good ideas. I mean, I think we need, we need the affordable housing bonds those investments, we need community land trust. You know, I think we need, uh, we need co-ops, um, we need public transportation. I mean, there's, there's so much, this is a multifaceted issue. 
Um, and we just need to tackle it on all fronts. Yeah, so much to think about. We could talk about this forever. <laughs> I want to make sure we have time to cover one or two other things. Diana, do you want to um, chime in maybe off our list that you want to ask? Yeah, definitely. Um, so a uh, question for me is, do y'all feel that anti-racist work is an important part of being a city council member? And if so, how would you implement that through policy? Let's see, who have we not uh, started with uh, yet? Uh, Casey, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, I can't keep, I can't express it enough. We need to not be disconnected from the community. We need to be held accountable. We need to be transparent with all of our actions and completely clear with our, all of our intentions because a lot of times, uh, candidate or incumbent, we say things and they sound good, but the actions speak differently. For example, we talk about progressiveness all the time at the, at the top and you know how we're not going to displace people and how we're going to keep our community intact. But yet some of our people vote against the, against the public. For example, take, trying to take away uh, your right to protest zoning changes. So that's a, that's a huge tool right there for the people to combat gentrification and to combat being displaced is by fighting what's being built in your neighborhood. So right now we have the right to uh, protest what's being built in our neighborhood. And if, we, uh, if you want to, you can gather 20% of the, the um, qualified uh, residents in the area and you get them to sign a petition and they can protest what's being built. So that's the thing, just listening to your people, being open, being transparent, being accountable, being accessible on top of that. And just, you know, having sympathy for other people as a, as a person of color myself, it's, uh, you sort of take it for granted speaking to other people of color or other people that look like you, but uh, it's, it's a lot more difficult whenever somebody doesn't agree with you or somebody doesn't look like you. So just practicing that, practicing being open, practicing uh, spreading culture of openness, of, of, of being accepting and understanding of people and just having sympathy. Because a lot of times we don't agree on the same things, but that doesn't help, makes us think that the other person is not even a person anymore. It's just an issue that you're, that you're arguing with. You're arguing with an issue and you forget to look at the human aspect of it. So just, you know, it's all about the culture of, of how we look at things and how we're raised and how uh, we just want to be one community. So I think that's it. We just need to just let our guards down sometimes, be one community, be open, and uh, just be accepting. Thank you. Uh, how about you, David? How do you feel anti-racism uh, would connect with, with being a city council member? Well, I think anti-racism is a critical component of being an effective and progressive council member. Um, and, you know, if I have the opportunity to serve, I would prioritize this. Uh, I think, you know, thinking about anti-racism right now, I think the biggest issue that comes to mind is, um, is public safety, right? There are millions of voices across the country calling for justice, um, calling for respect for Black lives. Uh, and here in our community, we face our own challenges. Uh, and I think the biggest one is that we have institutions that are meant to uphold justice that are failing to recognize the humanity of our Black communities. Uh, and it's why it's so important to say Black Lives Matter, because our institutions don't reflect that currently, and we need to change that. Uh, but systemic racism isn't just an issue in public safety, it's not just an issue in policing, it's something that pervades every single aspect of our society, in housing and employment and education. And so we need to focus on equity in every single type of policy that we make. Uh, and I think we can start at the city. Um, you know, we need to make sure that our boards, commissions, uh, and our city workforce as well reflect the rich cultural and ethnic diversity that we have in this city. Um, and it's, it's extremely important, not just for the sake of diversity, but because when you include people from different backgrounds uh, with different perspectives, it yields better solutions, better ideas, better results. Um, and, you know, the diversity of our community uh, is that strength and we need to tap into it. And, you know, I, like I said, I mean, you know, in public safety, in policing, it's where the issue is starkest, where it's more visceral, um, where, you know, it's undeniable. But in so many other places, it's so insidious and it's there 
uh, we need to recognize it, we need to identify it, and we need to actively work uh, on anti-racist policies uh, to change that and provide more opportunities uh, for everyone in our community. Thanks, David. Uh, Vanessa, I'll throw it to you. How do you view the intersection of anti-racist work and city policy? Yes, well, definitely interconnected and not just with city policy, but with state, federal, uh, our education system. I mean, basically every policy area that we have, everyone needs to commit or should commit to anti-racist work. Um, I believe that our, our budget, the city budget is a moral document and that our moral document should reflect our values. And so right now we need to look at how and uh, how are we equitably distributing our resources that gets to the decades of institutional neglect that we have here in Austin. We know that Austin's one of the most racially, economically, and our schools are one of the highest segregated schools in the state. And so we stand as divided today as we were nearly a century ago when our city master plan basically etched racism into how we shape our city. In District 2, we have a high number of officer-involved fatalities happening in District 2. So our communities of color, our black and brown communities, feel over-criminalized because of the color of our skin. So right now, if we are truly committed to anti-racist work, then we need systemic reform in how we do public safety in Austin. And, uh, and I think those are just a few of the ways that we can address this important work. Um, also echo what David said about having diversity on our commissions. I served on the Tourism Commission as a representative of District 2, and I was the only woman of color that was on that board for nearly a year before we saw some additional diversity. So that is still an issue that we have here in Austin. Thanks, Vanessa. How about let's round it out with, um, with Alex. Um, look, I'm, I touched on this a little bit before you need comprehensive financial education. You know, everybody, like a lot of people are talking about um, police violence and whatnot. And a hundred percent empathize with all of that. But one of the things that is getting completely lost in this is the wealth issue. You know, um, African-Americans have 50% less stock market participation um, than white Americans. And they earn 17% of the amount of money in their lifetime compared to their white counterparts generation, generationally. And this is on the Federal Reserve website, right? Um, so this accentuates the importance that we need to teach comprehensive financial education to these people, to people in these low income, um, black and Hispanic communities, because you have to bridge that wealth gap in order to see genuine and meaningful progress. Because once you bridge that wealth gap, you get more black owned businesses, you get more black employees, you get a better, more equitable workforce. You, you, you change the perception about how um, people are seen by law enforcement and you know, like um, their, their suburban white neighbors possibly. I mean, th this is just something, I'm, th this is just a, a different perspective. And then when, when it comes to policing, you know, you need meaningful police report for when it comes to actually addressing real racism. You know, if you're, um, if you, if you committed like police misconduct, it needs to be investigated by an objective third party of people with moderate political opinions so that people do feel as though they're getting justice. Um, and, you know, I said this earlier, you need to make um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and grappling training something that is, is mandatory because look, um, it reduces the justification for excessive and deadly force. And then if something like that does occur, people are more willing to understand, to, to, to side with the fact that the officer did that on purpose. And the person who actually was a victim will be more likely to get real justice as a result of that. You know, and then when it comes, like one last, one last thing is that, you know, when you're at like a MMA gym or a boxing gym or a jiu-jitsu gym, you know, you're around a really diverse group of people. Um, with a whole multitude of opinions and whatnot. So whatever racial biases that you have, if you're in that environment for a long enough period of time, that stuff is going out the window, guaranteed. Um, we only have a few minutes left. It's like crazy how like, we could talk about this stuff for hours. But um, maybe before we close, we'll have to like speed up the answers a little bit. But I really like, Diana, uh, your question about the campaigning and the pandemic. Do you want to end on that? <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've just been curious to know if, if y'all might, y'all wouldn't mind just talking about it for like a, you know, a quick bit. Uh, what has it been like campaigning during a pandemic? I mean, I'm sure you guys 
had thought about running for office before the pandemic started, and I'm sure this has kind of thrown a wrench into all of that. Um, how has it been and how have y'all been able to connect with, with folks in your district? Um, can we start with uh, Vanessa? Yeah, you know, it's definitely very different, um, but I will say there's something about having phone calls with people that live in district two that just feels so much more intimate. And in a way you can get, you can dive deeper on the issues than I think than I would have been had it been a public, you know, an event, I probably will only have had a few minutes. And so um, I think phone calls have been um, really a way that we've relied on getting our message out and then lots of social media, of course. Awesome. Casey, what about you? Thank you. That was a, a very interesting question. And it's kind of hard to for me to answer because I'm already known in my neighborhood. I already ran for city council in 2016. So as soon as I announced it again, uh, there was already people calling, already people adding me on Facebook, already people emailing, already people asking for signs. So a lot of my block walking has just been for me being in the community. I don't, you know, campaigning is just campaigning. But if you're a member of the community, if you're always in the community, you don't have to campaign like that because you're already known. You're already in the community. You're already readily, you're already readily available. But we've still been out there. We've still been, you know, I go to Dollar General. I go to different stores. I stand outside. I register people to vote. I talk to people. I mean, I'm still in the community and we're still block walking just in a different way. The people are coming to us now and we're not so much knocking on people's door and invading their privacy. But I mean, as far as the campaigning goes, I mean, it, we, haven't, we really haven't skipped a beat. There's uh, signs up in everybody's yard already. Uh, we still have more to go. People are still asking. People are still calling. So it just helps whenever you're already known within the community, whenever you've already ran. And uh, you, whenever you're just a true member of your, of your district, you're just in it all the time. There's no, there, is no, there is no necessary need for block walking because you walk around the district every day of your life. So that's how I feel. Awesome. And what about you, Alex? In a few short words, what's your COVID campaign look like? I mean... I got into this pretty late. And to be honest, I would not have actually gotten into this campaign if it wasn't for our response to the pandemic, because I am, you know, that working person who's being drastically affected as well as a lot of my friends and whatnot. So I do feel like the response is very personal. Um, so I, I got into this late. Um, but when it comes to, you know, communicating with people and talking to people in person, I nothing's really changed. You know, I've always, I always feel like you should be talking to people in person, no matter what, you know, you just have to be a little smarter and safer with how you go to go about it and you have to be respectful about what people's, you know, health ailments are. And then that's how, that's really how I look at it. Um, you know, I, one of the things that kind of obsessed me is the fact that we're not doing these forums in person. I, I feel like being able to do candidate forums in person allows you to actually meet the candidates and get a better, develop a better connection and have a better exchange of these ideas that you want to implement because ultimately no matter whether you win or lose, right the ultimate way to win these elections is to get your ideas pushed through to the general public. And it's a lot harder to do that when people are not talking with each other in person. Um, so that that's my, my take on it. I think that um, we should be meeting in person if, if you want my honest opinion. And I think that um, when it comes to campaigning, going door to door, talking to people individually so people can actually see you and see your face and have a real discussion with you. There, there's no, nothing will ever replace that nor should it. David, what about you? Well, you know, the, the pandemic really has disproportionately impacted our community, uh, including the Latino community. And, we're, you know, we're making up more than half of the COVID cases and half of the COVID related deaths. And so I think we have to be extremely careful about, you know, exposure in our community. Uh, you know, I've been campaigning for Democratic candidates and Democratic uh, progressive causes um, since I was at UT Austin when I first worked for Congressman Doggett. Uh, and this is unlike anything I've ever experienced uh, campaigning during COVID. Um, you know, it, um, it has made our priorities a lot more urgent. So in that regard, you know, we, we didn't need any additional motivation, but God, you know, we got it because our community is, is really hurting. Um, and so we're having to get really innovative. I mean, you know, and like other folks mentioned, you know, you're having, you know, we're having to do a lot more calls when for me, um, you know, those face-to-face -face interactions have always been the most powerful type of engagement. Um, I don't think anything beats just face-to-face -face direct voter contact. And unfortunately, you know, we're really limited in, in being able to do that. And so we're trying to find other ways of getting our message out there. Uh, and I think for us, you know, we've been really fortunate that um, 
there have been groups who, who have come to our, to our aid. And, you know, we've gotten the endorsement of the Central Labor Council, the Workers' Defense Action Fund, uh, all the Democratic clubs that have endorsed, including the Environmental Democrats, Black Austin Democrats, Austin Tejano Democrats, Capital Area Progressive Democrats, and of course, in our community, Dub Springs Proud as well. And so I think those groups, you know, have really big networks that have helped get our message out uh, and have helped us, you know, be able to share uh, our vision with a lot of the folks in our district. Great, thank you all for taking the time. Um, we, we pretty much are out, but I, I wanna give just a second, if everyone could go around and say their name one more time so people can just associate the name and the voice and a website or whatever your social media is handle is if people wanna learn more about you. So David, we could just start with you. Yeah, so I have a really unique last name, so it's pretty easy to Google me, but it's uh, David Chinkanchin, and our website is david4d2.com. Great, and Vanessa? I'm Vanessa Fuentes. My website is vanessaforaustin.com. That's all spelled out, Vanessa, F-O-R, Austin.com. And check it out. You can read up about, about my, web, my plans for housing, for community engagement, for uh, boosting small business, and for advancing community health. Great. And Casey? Thank you. Casey Ramos here. And uh, my website is Casey Ramos, the number four, the letter D, the number two.com. And there, of course, you can find out uh, how we feel about the direction that the city's going and what direction that we wanted to go. And uh, I think it'll be a lovely treat for most of the people in my district. It shows a lot of history of Austin. It shows a lot of history from uh, myself and uh, why I'm the best candidate. Great, and Alex? Um, Alex Stranger. Uh, my website is www.alexanderstranger, S-T-R-E like elephant, N-G-E-R, alexanderstranger.com. Um, my uh, social media, my Instagram and my Twitter are at the Alex Stranger. So if you want to get a hold of me, that's the best way to do so. And, you know, thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk at this forum. I really appreciate it. Great. And so before we wrap up, Diana, since I still have you here, I want to see if you can give some advice for our listeners. Um, as someone who's involved in politics and, um, has voted in, in lots of these small elections. Like what, what advice do you have for someone who's trying to research their ballot or make a decision? I know that I always hear from folks who are like so stressed, you know, so stressed about it and feel like I don't really know what, what's some general advice for how to go about these smaller races. I think most people know like who they're going to vote for for president, but it's these smaller races that I think trip people up a bit. Yeah, I think it, it helps out a lot to go to different like nonpartisan websites. Um, personally, I love the League of Women Voters um, and, and their website and a lot of the, the ways that they break things down easily. Um, but I would say don't feel intimidated and don't think that just because you don't understand something that you shouldn't just look it up online. Um, and then also talk to your friends about it as well because it's not just about folks um, individually going out and, you know, going to the polls and voting, getting involved. But it's, it's a big motivator to do it with your friends and your family as well. So they feel like you're not alone. It's a whole bunch of you, a group doing it um, and, and doing it in a fun way. It doesn't have to be intimidating and huge. Um, that's a, a big obstacle that you shouldn't let get in your way of um, making your voice feel heard in your community because it does matter. Cool. And one more time, Diane, I want to make sure you have a chance to plug some of those organizations that you work so hard with. Do you want to tell people again um, how they can connect with La Politica, Frida Friday? Yeah, so Frida Friday ATX um, on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, support a lot of uh, women of color artists if, if you're out there um, looking for gifts for yourself or for friends. And then it's at La Politica. ATX or no at La Politica TX on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, we post a lot of really cool graphics on voter engagement um, and we'll have some events coming up soon. Okay, great. Thank you all for participating. Um, that's pretty much our show for today. I'll just remind our listeners that you can find podcasts of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And to learn more about the Austin Common, you can visit our website at theaustincommon.com or follow us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. If you follow us on Instagram too, stay tuned because we're going to keep doing these polls where you'll be able to submit questions to other council candidates. 
Um, and just a reminder again, this show is hosted by myself, Amy Stansberry, um, and co-host today by Diana Gomez. Thank you again, Diana. Um, <laughs> and it's produced by John Hoffner and broadcast live via Co-op Studios, a cooperatively run community uh, radio station based here in Austin, Texas. You can listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows by visiting koop.org, or you can tune in to 91.7 FM. And then be sure to join us next week because we're gonna continue our election education series with a special focus on the race for Austin's District 10 council seat, uh, which serves West Austin. So we'll see you soon. Thanks.